Good morning. It's really good to look out and see you all in your very supportive faces. It's really helpful to me to see your supportive faces every Sunday, but especially sitting here this Sunday. (laughs) Thank you for being here. I'd like to thank my teacher, Galen Roshi. Galen is in California today at Green Gulch, helping to lead the Abbott's funeral for Mel Weitzman Roshi. So she couldn't be with us today, but I'm grateful to Galen Roshi for inviting me to give a Dharma talk on this very warm and very auspicious day. Today is a significant day in several ways. Today is June 19 or Juneteenth. On June 19, 1865, the news finally reached enslaved African-American people in Galveston that the Civil War had ended two months earlier, and they were finally free. Juneteenth is a day to celebrate that occasion. It's also a time to acknowledge that progress toward equality has been slow and that we have a lot left to do. June is also Pride Month. Happy Pride to our LGBTQ Sangha members, our queer Dharma group, my Dharma sisters, <laughs> and all of our allies. And I think that covers everyone here and everyone on Zoom. Hello, good morning. So happy Pride to you all. And of course, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, whether you are a father or you have a father or you're working to overthrow the patriarchy. (laughs) So I'm fortunate to have a really great father. I want to read something he wrote in a letter to me when I was 19 years old after I came out to my parents as gay. So my dad's an English professor and he quoted a line from T.S. Eliot. He wrote that he and my mother were happy that I'd come out and I could stop preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet. I think that's a really accurate way of describing what it's like to be in the closet, just day after day after day, preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet. So coming out of the closet is a big step towards becoming yourself. I want to talk about um, a famous Zen story that's also about becoming yourself. It's about a Zen practitioner named Matsu. Matsu lived in China in the 8th century, and I'm pretty sure there were gay people in China in the 18th, in the 8th century, um, although I don't know whether Matsu was one of them. We do know a few things about him. We know Matsu worked with horses, and he was known by the title of Horse Master. We know he was a big guy, physically imposing. Suzuki Roshi said in one of his Dharma talks, and I am not making this up, he said Matsu had a great physique. (laughs) So anyway, this is one of our favorite stories in Zen. Trisha talked about it in her wonderful Dharma talk a couple of weeks ago, but as a reminder, it goes like this. One day, Matsu, the horse master with a great physique, was sitting cross-legged on a cushion practicing meditation or zazen. His teacher, Nanyue, saw him sitting there and asked, what are you doing? 
Matsu answered, I am practicing Zazen. Nanyue asked, why are you practicing Zazen? Matsu answered, I am sitting to become a Buddha. Nanyue picked up a tile and started to polish it. This time Matsu asked the question. He asked, what are you doing? Nanyue answered, I am making a mirror. Matsu asked, how is it possible to make a tile into a mirror by polishing it? Matsu replied, how is it possible to become a Buddha by practicing Zazen? There is no Buddhahood besides your ordinary mind. So there's Matsu sitting on his cushion in the Zendo, trying really hard to become a Buddha. I imagine maybe Matsu's mind is churning out thought after thought, and he's thinking if only he could attain Buddhahood, his mind would finally be at rest. Maybe Matsu is silently criticizing himself for losing patience with his horses. And he's thinking if only he could attain Buddhahood, he would really deserve his title of horse master. Who knows? So he's polishing and polishing, trying to transform himself from the person called Matsu into an enlightened being called a Buddha. And then his teacher comes along and just kind of lets the air out of the balloon. Nanyue tells him there is no Buddhahood besides your ordinary mind. There's a commentary on this koan by Ehe Dogen, the founder of our school of Zen. Dogen wrote, at the moment Matsu becomes Matsu, Zazen immediately becomes Zazen. Matsu doesn't need to become a Buddha because Matsu has Buddha nature already. When Matsu stops trying to be someone else, he can express his true Buddha nature and his Zazen is Buddha activity. Suzuki Roshi later echoed that point using just seven words. When you become you, Zen becomes Zen. Suzuki Roshi explained, when you are you, you see things as they are, and you become one with your surroundings. So when we have the courage to be who we are, we can truly see ourselves for who we are. We can see all beings for who they are, which is to see that we are not separate. When you become you, Zen becomes Zen. So we're about to have a really big week in Houston for people being who they are. This afternoon and tonight, thousands of people will celebrate Juneteenth at Emancipation Park near downtown. That land, I found, was purchased in 1872 by a group of formerly enslaved people as a place to celebrate the anniversary of their emancipation. It was the site of the first Juneteenth celebration in America, 150 years ago this month. This weekend, it will once again be a place where people celebrate their freedom, their right to live as they choose and be who they are. Next weekend, there will be another celebration. On Saturday night, hundreds of thousands of people will gather downtown for the Pride Parade. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people at Pride, usually between 500,000 and 700,000 people. There are people from all over the city, people who drive downtown from the suburbs, people who come to Houston for the weekend or the week from small towns across South Texas and East Texas and Louisiana and all over the South. And many of these hundreds of thousands of people are 
enjoying the one time of the year when they can just really go all out and celebrate who they are. And many of these hundreds of thousands of people are allies, straight people who come downtown to celebrate that queer people can celebrate who they are. Pride has come a long way over the years. I'm sure many of you know that Pride began with the Stonewall Riot in 1969, which was a small but spirited protest against police who harassed and arrested gay people in New York City. My first Pride Parade was 21 years after that in 1990 in North Carolina. It was organized mostly by the Gay and Lesbian Student Association at the college down the road from us, UNC Chapel Hill. Except it actually wasn't a student organization at the time because two years before that, they'd had a campus-wide vote and the campus-wide vote was that there was not going to be a gay and lesbian association at UNC Chapel Hill. So technically, the group no longer existed. They got erased. But they organized a parade anyway. It was 1990, and they gave the, par they gave the event an optimistic theme, marching into the gay 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I found a news article about that parade online. The article said, there were few spectators or hecklers along the one and a half mile route. The truth as I remember it is there weren't that many participants either. Although I'm sure we outnumbered the spectators and hecklers. What there were a lot of was police. It's one of the things I remember most clearly, parking the car and walking through that hot June afternoon to where the parade was starting and thinking maybe this is a really bad idea, and then seeing all those police. And in a way, the police represented progress. Pride started as a protest against the police, and now the police weren't there to harass us. They were there to protect us. And I was really relieved to see them because there was a lot of hostility towards Pride, especially in places like North Carolina, but, but everywhere. And I think there was a lot of hostility because we were entering a transformative period for gay rights. In a lot of ways, we really were kind of marching into the gay 90s. We had reached the point where it was no longer commonplace for gay people to be attacked or arrested or fired from their jobs or dishonorably discharged from the military because they were gay. All those things were still happening, but they were no longer common. There was a lot of talk about tolerance, but the tolerance was conditional. The deal was basically that society would tolerate who we were in private as long as we kept it private. A few years later in 1993, that became an official policy of the federal government. Don't ask, don't tell. Well, when you have a pride parade and you wave signs and you shout slogans, that is the exact opposite of don't tell. <laughs> so to many people, it felt like we'd reached this sort of truce with society extending an olive branch. And here we were marching in the streets and kind of disturbing the peace and very conspicuously refusing to not tell. We were refusing to keep our end of the bargain. So pride was controversial. Pride was even controversial among many gay people. 
my roommate at the time, like a lot of people, thought pride parades were inflammatory and counterproductive. He didn't want to get beat up or fired because he was gay. He didn't think there was anything wrong with being gay. But he didn't see why it was something to be proud of. He didn't see why we should march in the streets and wave banners and shout about how proud we were. He thought it seemed like a provocation. Like maybe we were claiming we weren't just equal to straight people, but somehow better. He said, if we insist on gay pride, how can we object when the fraternities on our campus celebrate straight pride? They did that. So we were just stirring up trouble and for what? I think my roommate was right that pride sends a message to the world and that message can either be productive or not. But I don't think the real point of pride is to send a message at all. The patrons of the Stonewall Inn didn't fight back against the police in order to send a message. People assume that Stonewall was some major news event, but it wasn't. Next day, hardly anyone knew it had happened. But when the police raided the Stonewall Inn, the people there weren't fighting back in order to send a message to the world that they shouldn't be shoved into police vans. They were just literally physically refusing to be shoved into police vans. In my first pride parade, like the article said, there was hardly anyone there to hear our chants or read our banners, but we weren't just there to send a message that we should be free to express who we are. We were there to literally physically express who we are. The right to express who you truly are isn't a right that you can exercise by yourself in private. As queer people, we can only express our legitimacy and our pride by getting out there and being ourselves in public. So it's really important to have pride celebrations. It's important to have that ritual. Pride celebrations follow a long tradition of marginalized groups using rituals to form and shape and express their identities. There are countless examples, but one that stood out to me recently came from one of Trisha's daily emails to the participants in our practice period. Trisha shared an excerpt from a book about Zen women in Japan. It's called Bringing Zen Home, The Healing Heart of Japanese Women's Rituals by an author named Paula Arai. The book describes how Zen women in Japan developed a set of rituals. They just they made these rituals up. They weren't set out in scripture. They created these rituals. The book describes how these women began gathering together for calligraphy and sutra copying, which some of us have been doing during the practice period. They write short poems and give them to each other as gifts. They compose and sing hymns with lyrics based on Buddhist scripture. They practice ikebana or flower arranging the same tradition that gives us the beautiful arrangements we have here at the Zen Center. Actually, it's Gail who gives us the beautiful arrangements <laughs> that we have today at the, at the Zen Center, but uh, using the tradition of Ikebana. So the book explores how Japanese women have used these rituals to invent, control, and interpret their traditions and cultures. The book describes rituals as methods of actualizing. And I think that description is perfect. Methods of actualizing. Rituals are how people actualize who they are, whether they're Zen women in Japan or LGBTQ people in America. 
It might seem like a stretch, I don't know, to compare the quiet dignity of Zen women in Japan to the boisterous chaos of a pride parade. But I think rituals have many of the same functions for both. Here's a quote from the book that stood out to me. The book explains that the rituals of Zen women in Japan are in no way dependent on male permission, authority, or recognition. The rituals begin with assuming everyone is Buddha and proceed from there. In this way, they empower women to actualize their Buddha nature and heal them from delusions that trigger despair and loneliness. I think you could change a few words in that quote and say the same thing about the ritual of pride. Pride is in no way dependent on straight permission, authority, or recognition. The rituals begin with assuming everyone is worthy and proceed from there. In this way, they empower LGBTQ people to actualize their true nature and heal them from delusions that trigger despair and loneliness. So in Zen, we, we love our rituals, right? <laughs> our rituals include our formal practice, like lighting candles, burning incense, ringing bells, bowing, chanting. And some of our rituals are full-blown ceremonies, like the Shuso ceremony we'll have next Sunday when we'll all come together as a sangha and shout at Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> We'll pepper her with our practice questions. It'll be fun for us. <laughs> it makes sense to me that we have so many ceremonies and rituals in Zen. The characteristics of rituals really line up with the characteristics of Zen practice in so many ways. For one thing, rituals are physical activities. And Zen is a bodily practice. It's not just a mental activity. Our tradition teaches that there's no such thing as a purely mental activity because our minds and bodies are not two different things. It's just one thing, body and mind. Rituals also require us to pay attention to the present moment. And of course, that's our practice as well. If you're like me, when you get in the car and drive to the Zen Center, you're not consciously thinking of putting on your seatbelt or putting the car in gear, probably not even consciously thinking of the route that you're going to take to get here. But once we get here, we do pay attention to when we bow or how we sit or how we arrange our bowls for an Oriyoki meal. Rituals are also activities we do together, whether we're physically together or on Zoom or at home sitting Zazen together with all beings. When we engage in a ritual, we sit the same way others are sitting we bow the same way others are bowing, and that reminds us that we're all connected. So rituals are physical acts, they're mindful acts, they're social acts. And there's also another characteristic of rituals that's been on my mind lately, which is how important rituals are during times of suffering. Suffering is the basic concern of our practice. It's the first noble truth. There is suffering in the world. Not everything is suffering, of course, but sometimes suffering can feel very intense. Shakyamuni Buddha described how intense suffering can be in his third discourse after his enlightenment, which is sometimes known as the fire sermon. The fire sermon starts like this. Monks, 
Everything is burning. The sense organs and the objects of the senses are aflame. Perceptions are aflame. Feelings are aflame. Thoughts and consciousness are aflame. They are burning with the fires of craving, hatred, and delusion. And as long as the fires find fuel on which to feed, they will continue to burn and there will be birth and death, decay, grief, lamentation, suffering, despair, and sorrow. So when it feels like everything is burning, it really helps to take refuge in rituals. And maybe you can think of a time like that in your life. At a time like that earlier this year, I had a medical scare. The beginning of the year, I had one doctor that I hadn't seen in like two years. A few months later, I had five doctors. Looks like it was just a scare and I'm going to be fine. But for a few months, I spent a lot of time sitting in waiting rooms, filling out forms, getting tests done, waiting for the results, going over the results with my doctors, getting more tests done, and just generally worrying a lot. And I was sitting zazen, but every time I sat on the cushion, I found that my mind was racing. Sometimes my mind was trying to scare itself by conjuring up some terrible new diagnosis. Sometimes it was just spinning out ideas about work or a million other things. I know some of you have gone through times like that in your own practice. So Dogen gives us instructions for Zazen in Fukanza Zengi. He tells us to think of not thinking. And he says we should do that through non-thinking. For weeks on end, I could not even begin to follow that instruction. I was thinking of everything except not thinking. But the rest of Dogen's instructions I could follow. I could spread out a mat and put a cushion on it. I could place myself on the cushion. I could sit upright in correct bodily posture, neither inclining to the left nor to the right, neither leaning forward nor backward, and settle into a steady, immovable sitting position. And I could do all that at home, but I found myself drawn toward coming here to the Zendo when I could. Although the peace of mind that I had often found on the cushion had been disrupted, I could still take part in the ritual of Zazen, the incense, the bells, the bowing, the chanting. I felt like these things were no longer like accoutrements of practice. They were my practice. Like during that time, they were my entire practice. So I really needed the ritual of Zazen. The founder of our temple, Tenshin Reb Anderson Roshi, gave a Dharma talk about the ritual aspect of Zazen at Green Gulch in 1997. It's included in his collection of Dharma talks called Warm Smiles from Cold Mountains, Dharma Talks on Zen Meditation. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend that you read it. And in particular, I recommend that you read it in November, because in November, we are going to have a class or really more of a discussion group about the Dharma Talks in this book. And I'm obviously a big fan of this book, and I'm going to be facilitating that. So I hope y'all will sign up in November. <laughs> The book starts with a, a little bit of a joke, um, which won't surprise you if you've met Tenshin Roshi. The first sentence is, what I want to talk about is Zazen. Then he says, 
Zazen means, well, no one knows what it means. <laughs> Zazen is Zazen. Fortunately, the book doesn't just end there. Tenshin Roshi goes on to say a lot of really helpful things about Zazen. I think the point he's making there at the beginning of the book is just that Zazen is a tricky thing to write a book about. You can't just reduce it to a set of steps or instructions. One of the Dharma talks in the book is called A Ceremony for the Encouragement of Zazen. Tenshin Roshi explains in that Dharma talk that conventionally speaking, Zen students say, now I am going to the meditation hall to do Zazen. However, this is Tenshin Roshi speaking, the formal actions that you or I perform in assuming the traditional bodily posture of sitting meditation are not actually the Zazen of the Buddha ancestors. Their Zazen has nothing to do with sitting or lying down. That's what Dogen tells us in Pukan Zazengi. Zazen has nothing whatever to do with sitting or lying down. But not long after Dogen tells us that Zazen has nothing whatever to do with sitting, he tells us the character of our school of Zen is simply devotion to sitting, <laughs> total engagement and immovable sitting. So there's the question. If Zazen has nothing to do with sitting, why is our school of Zen totally devoted to sitting? Or to put it another way, why do we need the ceremony? I like the way Tenshin Roshi explains this. One clue is right there in the title of the Dharma talk, a ceremony for the encouragement of Zazen. The ritual of Zazen encourages the true practice of Zazen. Tenshin Roshi says that as human beings, we need forms to help us relate to the formless. I think of it this way. As a human being, I need the ceremony of Zazen because physically stopping what I'm doing and sitting on a cushion is the only way I'm going to get my mind to stop what it's doing and take a break from my daily life. When we sit Zazen, we take a break from the thoughts and activities that distract us. We take a break from all the different roles that we play in our lives teachers, students, caregivers, workers. We take a break from preparing faces to meet the faces that we meet. We notice who we are. We notice the reality of our Buddha nature. So I'd like to end today by coming back to our friend Matsu. In the koan, Matsu is faithfully participating in the ceremony of Zazen, seeking to become a Buddha. Nanyue says he might as well be polishing a tile, trying to make a mirror. So Nanyue isn't saying that Matsu shouldn't sit Zazen. He's saying that when Matsu sits Zazen, Matsu should be himself. Matsu is the student in that story, but he actually went on to become an important Zen teacher. So I'm pretty sure that after his dialogue with Nanyue, Matsu stayed right there on his cushion and kept sitting no longer striving to become a Buddha, but just taking pride in being Matsu. So this week, as you're sitting on your cushion or waving your rainbow flag <laughs> or both, I hope you will take pride in being yourself.